Lord, we, uh, we draw close to you and pray, Father, that you would help us. Because in even drawing close, sometimes it's hard, Father, to awaken our hearts and our souls and our minds and your presence here, Lord. And so we pray that you would draw close to us. Father, you'd come and find us this morning and that, Lord, you would take what's about to be spoken and that you'd make it personal. That, Lord, you'd give us the courage to, uh, to really lean in and to receive what you have for us today. And that, Lord, you would take away the distractions of musicians and building and even Joel. And that, Lord, uh, you would give us clarity to see you in the midst of all of this and uh, to hear the words that you have for us and also for us as a community. So lead us in this, Lord. We need you in Christ's name. Amen. Morning. Um, it's uh, really uh, good to be with you this morning. I uh, have just finished, uh, basically, well, I, this week I worked, and, but I had, I've spent two weeks uh, in my native land in Michigan. And uh, yes, I've decided to vote or, uh, you know, be a complete fan of the Michigan Wolverines football team this fall. And uh, I do believe that Big Ten football is better than SEC football. That's that. <laughs> yeah, you need to pray for me is right. Oh, it's been good. It's, it's, it's been good. It's been good to be back. And, I, and more than anything, I, I would have to tell you that this week has been, it's been an arduous week for me with this sermon. And uh, the main thing that I want to make sure that you all really hear from me this morning is the fact that I just really believe that, that God just has this for me today. And, and I trust that he'll have it for you. And because he's, he does very powerful things with his word in our lives. And despite where you're at today, where you're at emotionally or socially or spiritually, I, I just, my prayer all morning has been that God would just do a work in our lives today with this because the things that I'm going to talk about today are the way that this went was is, is very unpopular in my life it's it's not they're not things that I really like to dig in and look at in my life and I'm guaranteeing you that as we talk about some of these things today they're going to be it's going to be the same for you there's going to be a big piece of your heart that's really going to rub up against some of these things and it's going to be abrasive it's, you're, you won't like it. And, and I didn't too. And, and I really felt that the Lord, and still is continuing, just really needed to deal with some, some real issues in my life this week as a result of just spending time with the Word. So I, I hope you, you hear me today as I say to you that I'm a co-journeyer, a fellow journeyer with you as we talk this morning. We turn to Acts chapter 14. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We have been studying this book for a little while now, and we have now come across the time or on the time where Paul and Barnabas are involved in the first of their three missionary journeys. Last week, Randy talked with uh, you about a concept called radical grace, 
And I would like to continue that concept today as I talk with you this morning, as we consider what this idea of grace is, the message of grace, this concept of radical grace. Let me read here in Acts chapter 14, in verse 1, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. Remember, Paul sent to talk with the with the Gentiles, he is going to be the evangelist to the Gentiles, but in that, there are a lot of Jews, Jewish people who are incorporated in his message. God is unfolding his redemptive message through Paul. He's going to use Paul and Barnabas to evangelize, to speak the gospel to a great amount of people. Now the church is beginning to spread. So they go into the synagogue in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas together, and there they spoke. Look what it says, so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. And then this is the verse that I want to pick on today. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed, look what it says there, the message of his grace. Who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. The Jews had a very difficult time with grace, by the way, at this point. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. But remember, Paul comes preaching that you are justified by grace through faith, which is a very foreign concept for the Jews at this point, and still today, and still for many of us. The Jews believed that they were the chosen people, the only ones that would ever have rights to God or rights to heaven. And suddenly Paul comes and he says, I have a gospel for all men, all races. Hmm. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided again. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles, and there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derb and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. I'm going to stop there. I want to talk to you back. I want to talk to you today about one important topic that we seem to talk a lot about, I know, at both of our congregations here downtown and at 12 South, and it's grace. And we should talk about it. But as I was thinking about this this last week, I, wanna, I want you to consider something with me. Listen, ultimately, when you stop and think about grace, our view of grace is really rooted in our understanding of sin. Let me say that again. Ultimately, our view of grace is really rooted in our understanding of sin. It was in the 11th century that the religious scholar Anselm did a masterful treatment of the work of Christ and he warned those who thought God would overlook their shortcomings if they just tried their best. And here's, here's what his warning was. You have not yet considered how great your sin is. You have not yet considered how great 
your sin is. So today, I'm going to presuppose grace and tell us that we understand grace even in its more beautiful color once we begin to understand how great our sin is. A very unpopular topic, you have to agree. It's a very unpopular topic with me as I do business with the Lord. It hurts, it's painful, it's something I don't want to tell you about, it's something I don't even want to audibleize. It's something that you don't either. So let's deal with a little bit of pain. When I was 19 years old, I uh, was, uh, I worked for a police department in Pontiac, Michigan as a police cadet. A police officer in training. I didn't get to carry a gun, but I got to wear the uniform. Light blue, dark pants, shiny shoes that I shined all the time because I wanted to be this good man, good policeman. And I had, I got a chance, I had the opportunity to go and ride in the police car on these calls. You know, that was part of the training. I got to do the, do the radio, you know, the dispatch radio, you know, 10-4 thing. You know, you never want to say 10-4, good buddy, on that deal, you know. Just, you know, you got to do that and you get to go out in the cars. And, you know, well, there's, I realized that I was on about my second call. It was like, like 2 in the morning. And I realized that as I was in this car, we got this call to go to this bad accident. I realized that I had no idea what I was in for. Two guys in the front, me in the back, we go pulling up on this accident, and it's this car that's down into a ditch, and this back into the car is coming out, and there's flames coming out of the car, of the front, and I get out of the car, out of the police car, and my heart drops down into my stomach, because I realize that this is actually happening to me in my life right now. Like, now, this is going on. And so the two police officers rushed to this car. And I didn't want to do that. And as they rushed to the car, they lean into the car. And I say this from about 50 feet away from the car. I said, how bad is it? How bad is it? And that day, it happened to be real bad. It was uh, two people had actually died in that accident. When you look at the scriptures, when you go and actually peek over the edge of what the scriptures have to say about us, follow now, it's a complete and utter car wreck as it deals with sin. Do you follow? The scriptures treat us because of our sin, because of Adam's first sin, treats us as dead people. We're dead. Sin has literally rendered us dead. It's the worst news it could possibly be. How bad is it? It's the worst. The Pharisees and Paul here subscribe to what you would call a perfectionistic program. I'm getting somewhere with this to try to follow along in the front here. These Pharisees subscribe to what you would call a perfectionistic program of life, obeying the law. And here's the point. 
They called everyone to be perfect. Everyone had to be perfect. Their view of sin, follow this, their view of sin was an external view of sin. They saw sin as actions, kind of external realities rather than attitudes basic to fallen human nature because of Adam, which is internal. So they talk about actions versus an internal condition. They like to talk about the actions versus what happened to us at the fall. In the AA meeting, the man comes into the meeting and he stands up before everybody and he says, hi, I'm John, I'm an alcoholic. He's speaking about his condition. He doesn't say, hi, I'm John, I drink. I have drinking problems. He has drinking problems because he believes something about his condition. The Bible speaks about this. See, if sin is considered in actions, all one really has to do as far as actions are concerned is to, well, be holy. You stop this and you start that. And many of us have kind of this view of sin today. We kind of have the Pharisee's view of sin. We start this and stop that. In order to be holy, we, we do this or we don't do that. If you have a problem with lust, it's because you're watching bad movies. It's because you're reading bad magazines. It's because you are looking at bad sites on the internet. So what should you do? You should handle that sin by not doing that. Somebody comes along to you and says, stop doing that. What they don't talk to you about is, how come we can't stop doing that? Do you follow? It's like when I was little, uh, my brother and I would get into massive fights. I was three and a half years older, had the strength over him, and I would love to beat him up in back rooms of my house without my mom and dad seeing, especially if he disobeyed me. <laughs> And there was one day that we were down in the, in the laundry room and he had, he had taken one of my precious models out of my room and he comes running by in the laundry room with it and I said, hey, where are you going with that? And he goes, he goes I'm taking this outside. We're putting a firecracker in it, dude. We're going to blow this thing up, man. We, my buddy's got like an M80. That's what they used to be, M80s. We used to call them M80s and cherry bombs. And, you know, you, you blow these things up, right? And I said, you're not going to do that. And he goes, I grab a brick. I said, this happened. You want to talk about a depraved condition? He goes running by. I go grab the, I go grab the brick. My mom was this hardened to my, my brother and I fighting. She was this hardened. This is how many fights she had been in. I'm grabbing the brick. She, my brother's running away. She comes running, in, walking in with a load of laundry. She goes, Joel, stop doing that. Now, later, my dad dealt with my condition. <laughs> if your kids are rebellious, it's because uh, maybe they listen to that real bad rap music. That gangsta rap. So you got to tell them, don't look at, don't listen to that the rap music. Don't do that. Stop doing that. You follow what I'm saying here? And we probably see this once a week, all the time on the television. Danny just robbed the neighborhood convenience store, shot the owner. A few weeks later, they interview mom outside her house. She's standing there in her bathrobe, usually. She says this, 
Well, it must be that bunch of kids he's running around with because uh, I'm going to tell you something about Danny, she says. Danny's a good boy. Well, Danny's not a good boy. Danny's a sinner. Joel's a sinner. And I have just as much propensity even today to go and shoot the convenience store owner than Danny did because of my condition. Understand it. We're going somewhere with this because this is one of the ways that we've really got to understand the amazing grace that God's given us. Is we really understand the absolute and utter, complete, total devastation of who we are as people. That the only hope I have, the only way I can, I can have a salvation is if I cry mercy. If God comes down, he sends a son. He descends into my life. He chooses me from the foundation of the world to do a work. Samuel Tuke was an English reformer who lived in the 19th century and he introduced a radical new approach to the treatment of mentally ill people. At the time, asylum workers were chaining lunatics to the walls and beating them in the belief that punishment would defeat the evil forces within. Tuke taught that, or the mentally ill afflicted, he taught the mentally ill that were afflicted how to behave at tea parties and at church he dressed them the way everyone else was dressed so that no one would recognize them as mentally ill. On the outside, they looked fine, but the problem was he never did anything to address their suffering. And no matter how they behaved, they remained mentally ill. We are all Tuke's patients. We've been taught the proper way to look and behave. It's called the gospel of good works or the gospel of sin management. It doesn't treat sin as an internal condition, but as bad things that we do. Robert Capon says this about the church. You're not going to like it, but I think many times many of you can probably really relate to this. He says this, the church has spent so much time inculcating in us the fear of making mistakes that she has made us like ill-taught piano students. We play our songs, but we never really hear them because our main concern is not to make music, but to avoid some flub that will, get us, that will not get us in trouble. There are massive problems that stem, and here's where I want to go, try to follow along here. It's important because this and everything that I have to say, these three things that I have to say in this are all very indicative of my life. But there are massive problems that stem from this kind of light view of sin. And these problems inhibit us, let me say it again, these problems inhibit us from truly understanding the message of grace that Paul was preaching and Barnabas was preaching. So follow first problem that we have as we have we think about this view of sin is we have a problem called resentment and as I sit with many of you over coffee at the different coffee shops around the city this is one of the first things that emerges as we begin to talk about your past and your life and your your, your history of understanding God with your parents and in the church that's because many of us today are deeply resentful toward the church 
our parents, or even God, because we have blown up the balloon of good works and good behavior only to have the air leak out or the balloon pop altogether. We are a discouraged group of people. That's what the balloons do. They create an overworked moralism that is constantly in need of breath. And some of you, many of us here, are victims of what we would call an overworked moralism. We come to the end because we realize in the darkest corners of our life that we just can't do it. And there's many people in here today who have come to that place. We just can't do it. I just can't run on that treadmill any longer. It doesn't work. People may think that we have it all together, but we know that we don't, and we're sick of trying. But we know when we lay our heads down at night on our pillow, and when we really consider our heart and the terrible things that we've thought about that day and the terrible things we've thought about doing, how absolutely depraved we are. But there's hope, my friend. Problem number two is what I would call cavalier sanctification. Cavalier meaning whatever. Sanctification meaning we are a holy people set apart to God who are to live our lives actually under the authority of our master teacher, Savior and Lord Jesus. Our sanctification every day with him. And many of us have, because of our view of sin, a very cavalier view, a very cavalier understanding of our sanctification. Oh, I slept with my girlfriend last night, somebody told me a couple weeks ago. Hmm, tell me about that. Not the details, please. Well, it's no big deal, man. God forgives, right? That's called a view. That's called cavalier sanctification. Or you could even say this. That's a very cavalier view of the cross. Read Romans and what Paul talks about when we think about sin. And we live in a day and age where it's very easy for us to... Well, because we are a grace-driven people or because of this, the relative nature and the pluralistic nature of our society, we view sin as being, well, it's really no big deal. It's no big deal that I sleep with my girlfriend before we're married or my boyfriend. or It's no big deal that I cheat here. It's no big deal that this is going. It's no big deal. And it goes on and on and on. The guy says to me, I just can't stop looking at porn. Well, God will forgive me. God will forgive you. But what are the problems going on beneath that that we need to address, right? Because we do have a loving God who will forgive his sons and daughters. There's no doubt about that. But you see, what I want you to hear today is this. Cavalier sanctification manages sin, but it neglects what's most important. How serious sin really is. Are you hearing me this morning? How serious sin really is. And I begin to realize how serious sin really is when I begin to realize how bad my sinful condition really is. And by the way, it's important for those of you that are in Christ, you would call yourselves disciples. 
it should intrigue us and it should discourage us at the same time that as a result of Christ now living inside of us, we have not been completely eradicated of the sinful nature, have we? We have been, Dave says. If we have been, then why does Paul say that I do what I don't want to do in Romans 7? There is a flesh and there is a spirit war that still goes on that will never be eliminated until the other side of our lives in heaven. We still will war with these things. Are we saints now in Christ? Yes. Do we now have a power over the flesh in sin? Thank God, yes. That's why I have to throw my hands and my head and my whole body on the mercy of God because I still deal with my depravity every day. But as we think about this idea of cavalier sanctification, I want you to really think about this for a minute because it'll help you greatly in all avenues of your sanctification when you begin to realize your great propensity to still sin even though you're in Christ. The brother comes to me, he looks at me and he says, it's okay, I can go to my girlfriend's dorm room and study economics. Bro, are you serious? No, really, come on, man. You can go to your girlfriend's dorm room who you wanna tear her clothes off as soon as you get in there and you can study economics? I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm a saint. I have the armor of God. Praise God, you do. That's right. Jesus says, be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. You're not being a serpent at this point. Think about it. Think about what's going on. See, what would be great is for that brother to look at me and he, he would be able to say, guess what? And this is what the reformers said. You know what the reformers actually said? They said, you're a saint when you actually realize how much of a great propensity to sin you really have. And that's what that brother needs to realize. That's what you, sister, need to realize. I can't walk into that situation. I can't go down to the bar. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a, I'm a saint sinner. I can't do that. So it's to be a little bit more aware. And I think as we think about this idea of this cavalier kind of sanctification, let me make sure that I hear you. I say, I say this to you. God deeply wants a union with you and I so that we would want and completely understand his grace enough so that that would be the motivation that our works of obedience would be because we love because he's loved us. Lord, your love has shattered me. And even today, as I think about this bad thing, as I want to do this bad thing, I lay on the floor and cry mercy and cry grace and cry, strength, give me everything that you are, Lord. I go to my friends sitting right here. I say I'm struggling because I wanted to literally knock one of my daughters out yesterday. I need your help. And Randy looks at me, and here's what he says to me. It was beautiful. It happened about two or three months ago. And he says, yell into the abyss, bro. How many people have ever told you that? And I thought, are you kidding me? I got, I want to yell into that abyss. I want to tell somebody what's going on inside of my heart. 
that I'm, that I, that I'm hurt and that I have terrible urges and terrible desires. Romans 7, Paul says it. And then I want somebody to minister to me the hope of the living God in the abyss. That now because I'm in Christ, I actually have a power available to me that is real and that is true and that is eternal. And before Christ, I had none of that. It's good, isn't it? What's the last problem? The last problem is what I would call an anemic or weak Christology. We have problems with resentment. We have a problem with cavalier sanctification, what I called it. And then we have a problem with kind of an anemic and weak Christology. Your Christology is basically this, how you view Jesus. And by the way, all of us in this room have one. We all have a Christology, how we view Christ. In other words, many of you in this room probably would say, Christ was a good man. He said a lot of good things. He was a good teacher. Many of you in this room would say, no, he was more than that. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He's my Lord. He's my God. He's my Savior, right? Two different things. Some of us, I think, I know I do, can sometimes have a very weak Christology. If it's just about good and bad actions, why do I need a Savior? Let me ask you a question this morning. Think about this. Answer this question to yourself. Why did God become man? Think about it. Why did God become man? Why did he have to do it? He had a plan from the beginning of time. You see redemptive history, you know, he flowed out from Genesis all the way through. And yet he had to send Jesus. He had to become a man. Why? Paul says it in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So God came, had to come because we would have never showed up at the party because of our sin. We don't need a Jesus who can help us with our sins. We don't need just, just need a Jesus who helps us be good and nice little boys. We don't just need a Jesus who gives us some successful principles to run our business. Good grief. We got enough successful principles to last us 50 worlds of success. We don't just need a Jesus who gives us a little nudge on Sunday mornings and gets us through the week. We need a descending Jesus who came down into the absolute car wreck of our lives and literally breathes his life into our mortal bodies. And I need that every day because I have a great tendency to wreck the car. We need a justifying Jesus who walks into the insane asylum that is our lives and says, only I can speak to your inner condition. The absolute insanity that is your sin I speak to it, and Paul spoke to it there back in Romans 13 when he says, through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. I need that justifier Jesus. I need to stand before my God, but I can't stand before him unless I have my righteousness, Jesus. The reformers called Jesus 
our alien righteousness, a righteousness that not, is not even a part of any possibility from our mortal bodies but his. The whole point of the gospel is that we can't do enough good things and good striving and good moralizing. The gospel is a gift. It's a gift for people who don't deserve it. I'm going to read something here to close myself or close this morning. I love this. It's a, a book by the name of uh, by the name of Putting Amazing Back into Grace, and the author is Michael Horton. And uh, please indulge me real quick, because it's a perfect ending as it talks about having for us what I would call a solid Christology in our lives. Listen. We are born into this world in union with Adam, and everything he had, we have. Everything he is, we are. He earned God's judgment from himself and for us. Had he kept from eating the forbidden fruit, he would have earned for himself and for all of humanity eternal life. And there would have been no sin, no suffering, no sickness, no pain, no guilt, and no death. But as it happened, Adam disobeyed, and we were identified with him in the likeness of his sin. His guilt was imputed to us, and, and his sinful, rebellious nature shaped us in the womb, even before we committed actual sin. But there came a second Adam, who made it to the end without disobeying God. He was sent as a new representative. Listen to this. This is so awesome. Instead of a tree in the middle of the garden, this second Adam was taken to a high mountain peak. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Instead of feeding, he fasted. Instead of indulging his flesh by eating, he denied himself. And finally the devil, the same tempter in Eden, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. But instead of easy exultation, you shall be like God. Jesus, who was God, nevertheless took the long road of obedience, the slow road of suffering, the rough road of sacrifice that would lead eventually to Calvary. In this obedience and the other 33 years of consistent sinless perfection, Jesus Christ earned for us what Adam failed to earn. Thus, the guilt imputed to us through Adam was charged to Christ, and the righteousness of Christ was imputed to us. Sounds way more theological than what it is. But I got to tell you, that's the gospel. Christ is our righteousness. Randy said a beautiful thing to you last week that we want to make sure you hear. Remember that in Christ, your sin no longer defines you. You don't have to keep running the treadmill to kind of in your sanctification for God. It's okay. But God, I think for me, has a more beautiful and colorful sanctification than I'm living. Does that make any sense to you? It's not necessarily about the things I do and don't do, but I got a feeling he loves me so much. He has so much more for me than some of the things that I spend my time with and do. Think about that. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the message of grace. This was hard for me to give this morning, and I pray that uh, this morning, uh, Lord, you would just... Uh, Allow me to get a lot more in touch with you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people 
who even see our tendency to wander, that we would lay ourselves out before you and cry mercy, that you would be our strength, that you would be our song, that our lives would be more than just these things, these good and bad things that we do, so much more. Lord, give us your strength. Allow us to continue to walk in this message of grace that you have for us. Continue to teach us by your spirit as your people. I thank you for my friends this morning. In your name, amen.